Welcome to The Tech Between Us, a podcast that takes a look at the past, present, and future of some of today's most influential technologies. I'm Raymond Yen, your host and director of technical content at Mauser Electronics, a leading global distributor of semiconductors and electronic components. These days, we're hearing about cyber attacks on a regular basis in the news. While we most often hear about complex attacks on utilities, government agencies, or credit reporting companies, most attacks are not committed by malicious state-sponsored actors. In fact, it's the attacks we don't hear about or aren't even aware of that scare me more. With the Internet of Things eventually encompassing tens of billions of nodes throughout our industrial plants, homes, and even cars, hacks against these embedded systems will become more prevalent with even more devastating results. Most of these IoT devices are independent of human interaction, so hackers can pretty much attack at their convenience over an extended period if necessary. An estimate from Fastly states that some IoT devices are attached to the internet for only six minutes before being discovered and compromised by hackers. Six minutes. A good portion of the blame for that resides with owners and users of these devices, not changing the manufacturer default user ID and password or not patching known threats has led to some crippling botnet attacks by hundreds of thousands of IoT nodes. However, design engineers can also do their part in hardening their products against hacking and tampering. Standard techniques like using a trusted execution environment and performing proper authentication for access to software and systems help guard against many current threats, and major component manufacturers have defenses built in their MCU or dedicated security devices. But it seems like hackers are still half a step ahead of engineers and users of embedded devices, which begs the question, what sorts of threats are on the horizon, and how do we make sure that devices designed to be deployed for years or even decades remain invulnerable to being hacked? To explain ways in which engineers can strengthen the security of their design both today and tomorrow, we're talking with Alan Grau, VP of Sales and Business Development for PQ Shield. Alan, welcome to The Tech Between Us. Thanks, Raymond. It's great to be here. Can you briefly tell us a little bit about yourself and, and uh, what PQ Shield does? Sure. So I've been in the embedded space really for most of my career. I started out uh, in the uh, telecom world at AT&T Bell Labs and Motorola. And, um, you know, from there, it got into the IoT space back, back before we really even called it IoT. So building embedded devices. And a lot of that was focused around security. And so I've been really been focused on embedded system security for the last couple of decades. And I've been with PQ Shield now for about eight months. Um, so PQ Shield is a startup in the security world focused on building post quantum encryption algorithms kind of the next generation of encryption algorithms. And so with that, you know, we're we're targeting a number of different markets, but really heavily focused around embedded devices, IoT devices, and and building that next generation of security solutions for those types of systems. So Alan, in in, in your you know two decades of working with embedded security, um, you've probably seen all kinds of attacks. What are some common attacks today that engineers should be worrying about on their system? Well, that's a great question. And really, security in the embedded space has been kind of a slow evolution. You know, in, when we first started building security into embedded devices and IoT devices, you know, people felt like, well, we've got a, a connection to this device where we can log in over a Telnet-type connection, so we'll upgrade that to support SSH, and now we've got great security. And, and relative to some of the devices at the time, that was was true. So, you know, there's a lot of legacy devices that have, you know, kind of early first generation security solutions built in, which are quite limited. So, 
you know, so many older devices are, are quite vulnerable. You know, they'll often have either weak security or communication that doesn't have strong authentication on it. Um, so it's, it's led to a, a wide range of attacks. I mean, there have been some wildly successful botnets that have taken over large numbers of IoT devices. Um, and, and again, many of those are exploiting kind of very simplistic um, approaches because the security is quite weak. Um, you know, there have been others that are, you know, much, much more sophisticated. You know, we've seen some attacks where, um, you know, devices are using an older generation of encryption and, you know, encryption that when the device was built seemed quite strong, but, you know, 10 or 15 years later, um, it's possible to break that encryption, to break the, you know, to break the key and, and decipher the encryption or to break the authentication and, and log into the device, um, you know, quite, quite easily. Yeah, I, I know. I mean, there have been some, you know, I mean, SHA-1 essentially at one time was considered, un, you know, unbreakable as as well as DES. And I think both of them have been shown to be uh, to be vulnerable. Yeah, no. So both of those have been deprecated and are it's recommended they're no longer used. And, um, you know, as, you know, as computing devices get faster and faster, you know, we have to continue to reevaluate our standards and encryption and in security as a whole. And and you know build in stronger capabilities. So so to begin with, I mean I know one of the 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 key factors for security is actually you know making sure that whomever is trying to access a system is allowed to access access that system or you know the process of authentication. Um, you know, how does an embedded engineer properly authenticate either both the software or a user in, in their system? Yeah. So uh, I'm actually going to back up just one step uh, previous to that because, you know, I'd mentioned you know, kind of first generation security solutions in embedded devices or IoT devices, you know, and, and what I meant by that was, you know, solutions that, you know, security solutions that were really kind of point solutions. They tried to address a single plat single problem on the device or a single element of security. So when you look at a, a more complete security solution for an IoT device, you know, what I really mean by that is, you know, including, you know, what you had just mentioned, strong authentication, including, you know, secure boot in the device so that as the device first powers on, it can validate that the firmware running on the device is what's supposed to be there, that it's from the manufacturer or an approved vendor and it hasn't been tampered with. Um, you know, strong encryption for the security protocols. And, and I guess the other piece of that is really just looking at what the overall, you know, use case and attack vectors are for a device and ensuring that you know security systems have been in, put in place to cover the you know the important attack vectors. So so the first step really you know before we worry about authentication is kind of is looking at the entire big picture for a device. You know what are the likely attacks and how do you build in defenses for those? And then once that's in place, you know then authentication becomes an important part of that. Uh, authentication is an area where we've seen. Um, some successful attacks against IoT devices, either because the device didn't require strong authentication and someone was able to break into the device. You know, so some of the botnets we talked about earlier, or that we briefly mentioned, uh, were able to be successful because you'd see classes of devices that simply had a, a username and password for authentication and all devices were shipped with the same default password, and very few people bothered to to change them. You know, if if you know you get a smart door lock, and my mom's going to take that and, and have that installed in her house, she's not going to know 
that she needs to worry about the security of that, that needs, she needs to update that, right? Security professionals, you know, we're paranoid. We, <laughs> we, we put strong passwords on everything because we've seen what can happen, but, but they, but it needs to be very simple, easy to use and not, you know, default to weak security. But the, so the problem is then you've got a default username and password that, you know, is probably on a user manual that's, you know, available on the internet that hackers can find and read, or they can reverse engineer the code and find, find that. And then they can build a botnet or, you know, some sort of an attack that then propagates across those devices, finds all the devices using that same username and password. And, and suddenly that weak authentication allows a very broad scale attack. Right. And, and because it sounds like this could be replicated over and over again across multiple embedded systems from that same company, assuming, like you said, that it's a default password somewhere. And, and by multiple, we're often talking tens of thousands of devices in many cases, right? So these, these become very large botnets very quickly. Right. Yeah. I remember what was the most recent one? I think it was, was the, if I'm correctly pronouncing it right, the Mirai. Uh, botnet. Yeah, so the Mirai's, that's probably the most well-known, you know, botnet. It was extremely successful, and there were several variants of that. And it's been a while since that came out, and um, I'm trying to remember the numbers. I, I don't remember the numbers off the top of my head, but I believe there were, you know, hundreds of thousands of devices that were compromised. Yep. Yep, yeah, that, that, that's what I remember as well. I mean, just this vast army of, of, of you know, bots, you know, doing doing somebody's bidding. Yeah, and you know, with that sort of, you know, the number of resources available, you know, they were able to start some very, very successful distributed denial of service attacks, and you know, other attacks that were um, were quite effective. The Optiga Trust M IoT Security Development Kit from Infineon is the easiest way to develop and evaluate end-to-end security use cases for your IoT devices. It is delivered with two out-of-the-box security use cases, secure communication with Amazon Web Services over MQTT, and secure zero-touch cloud provisioning using Serent Cloud ID. Learn more by visiting mauser.com slash Infineon. But that brings us back to your point of, you know, how do we worry, how, how do we address authentication? That is really one of the fundamental, you know, security principles that designers need to be concerned about. Every device on the network, you need to know who it is. It needs to be able to identify itself. And that needs to be done in a way that's cryptographically strong and can't be um, easily defeated or counterfeited. And the, and the topic of cryptography is is obviously key, one of the fundamental key uh, you know principles of any kind of security, whether it be authentication or encrypting data before it goes before it's stored into memory and things like that. Um, how strong are current are are the current cryptographic methods? That's not an easy question to answer because there's no simple, straightforward answer. Um, part of it depends upon what exactly you mean by the current cryptographic um, algorithms. But but the big picture answer to that is that the current cryptographic approaches are strong against current attacks. And what I mean by that, and this gets into what you know, PU Shield is focused on, is you know, researchers are working very hard and and making very rapid progress in the development of quantum computers, and and quantum computers are going to fundamentally change the security landscape. Now, the the time frame for when that happens is debatable, but um, you know, everybody, all of the experts tend to agree that it'll be sometime this decade 
that a quantum computer will be able to break RSA or e- RSA and ECC encryption, the current asymmetric encryption algorithms. Right. I, I know a, a lot of embedded security products are based on the elliptical curve cryptography methods. Um, you know, so so we're saying that um, as quantum computers become more uh, more viable, I guess is a good word to put it. Um, I mean, those are going to be – would you say they're going to be obsolete or would you say that they're just simply be, going to be better methods of, of protecting our systems? Yeah, I would say that they will be – the encryption methods will need to be deprecated and replaced. And systems that continue to use the older encryption methods will be vulnerable. And there will be you know known attacks that um, really only can be mitigated by migrating to the next generation of encryption algorithms. Yeah, because it always seems that, you know, I mean, you hear it in the news, hackers always seem to be that half step ahead of design engineers when it comes to things like security. Um, there are always new types of attacks, new, um, you know, new ways to, you know, crack even secure systems. Um, and what we're talking about here is, you know, using quantum computers, that, that seems to be kind of the frontier of, uh, you know, I mean, of security. Yeah, no, I mean, hackers are very clever, right? And the the challenge is, you know, the hacker needs to find one weak link often to break into a system. So you can have, you know, multiple different, you know, methods of trying to secure a system. And, you know, any single vulnerability, you know, can often allow a hacker to to defeat the system. So it, it is a big challenge and, and hackers do often seem to be one step ahead um, and, and they're certainly very good at finding that weakest link or the kind of the low-hanging fruit, if you will, f- that can be attacked. But, but quantum computing, you know, the distinction there is, you know, today if somebody breaks into a system, it's rarely because they've broken the encryption. Or if it is, it's because they're using a known you – know, the device is still using an obsolete encryption algorithm. So the, you know, very few – well, let me say that differently – I don't know of any successful attack on a computing system that found the root cause to be breaking the fundamental encryption algorithm when strong encryption algorithms were used. Now, sometimes people have broken encryption because even though the encryption algorithm is strong, the implementation had an error in it, or you know, there, or they used. Um, they didn't have enough entropy when they created keys, so hackers were able to guess the keys. So people have been able to attack encryption algorithms by breaking the implementation, even though the algorithms are theoretically still too strong to be broken by current computers. So there really is a distinction between the algorithm itself, whether it's RSA or elliptical curve, and the way an engineer implements it on their system uh, with, you know, different types of random number generators, different, you know, key generation methods. Absolutely, right. So, um, and, and that's true of other systems as well, right? I mean, you can have you know, a protocol that's well designed, but if somebody implements something wrong, then suddenly the protocol has a, a problem with it. Um, and and many security issues are implementation issues. But with quantum computers, what's changing is quantum computers will be able to break RSA and ECC. And and what that means is that they'll be able to take the public key and from that derive the private key. Something that's something that can't be done with current computing technology. And if you can do that, you can essentially take over the algorithm. You can impersonate 
whoever it was that has the private key, you can decrypt information that's supposed to be secret. Um, so the authentication schemes break down, the you know the key exchange mechanisms, the signature algorithms, all those things break down and can be defeated. So really with quantum computers, it's letting hackers literally brute force their way into breaking breaking security as opposed to just trying to find, like you were saying earlier, a, a hole or a you know mistake in the implementation. They're, they don't care whether there's a hole or a mistake. They just you know flat out just put you know computing horsepower or in you know or, or the the equivalent of quantum computing horsepower behind it and just say, go. Exactly. And so that's what, you know, the industry has been starting to, to look at. So NIST, the National Institute of Science and Technology in the U.S., started a process, I think it was in 2015, when they, they first kicked off the discussion of, hey, we need to create new standards, new algorithms that will be safe in a quantum world, that will not be easily broken by quantum computers. And so that process started then. Um, it, it kicked off in earnest in 2018 when they started uh, having engineers and researchers submit algorithms for evaluation. And so through that process, they've gone through three selection rounds and are at the very, very final stages of that now where standards are starting to be um, to be produced. Now, are, are these standards simply variations of current RSA and ECC implementations, kind of like going from DES to triple DES? Um, or are they truly new algorithms um, that um, that can't be, um, I guess, let me think of the best way to say this, that, that aren't possible with systems today? Great question. So they are new algorithms, and but there's a couple of things that are important to understand in this process. So first off, quantum computers are really good at certain things, but they're not simply faster computers. They're not just supercomputers. So they're really good at certain things, but relatively weak at other problems. So they're really good at factoring prime numbers, which allows them to break RSA. Um, they're an elliptic curve discrete logarithm problem is the hard math problem behind ECC. And they can also solve that because that's can be some viewed somewhat of a, as an equivalent or, or cast as an almost an equivalent of factoring prime numbers, allowing quantum computers to break that. But there's other math problems that they're not good at. So these new algorithms that have been submitted by researchers and that NIST is going to be standardizing are based upon using different mathematical techniques than rather than prime numbers or the discrete lo the elliptic curve discrete logarithm problem, so it's different mathematics in the algorithms. So they're different algorithms, but they are algorithms that can still run on traditional computers. So we don't need a post quant or a, we don't need a quantum computer to create quantum safe encryption. We can do quantum safe or post quantum encryption on a traditional computer just using different mathematics in the algorithm. So the new algorithms are tailored specifically for attacks using quantum computers. What if somebody were to try to attack these using just standard you know, computing that we have today? Um, would it still be next to impossible, or are there ways that um, – that today's computers, I mean, our, our standard, you know, PCs and servers and whatnot, um, could, um, you know, crack those algorithms that where a quantum computer couldn't. Yeah. So the algorithms are designed to be safe from attack from both traditional computers and quantum computers. So yeah, that's absolutely an important part of the process. 
Now, I mean, yeah, you said that they, these algorithms have, have been submitted. Um, how close are we to to seeing some uh, some new standards coming out of NIST? So there's actually two algorithms that were standardized a couple of years back for a, a couple of very for a, a very special use case. They're um, they're used for essentially code signing or can be used for document signing. So they're hash based digital signature algorithms. Um, so they so we do actually have some standards, but they're not. Uh, applicable for kind of general replacement for RSA and DCC, excuse me, RSA and ECC for all use cases. Um, so, th- so we do have some standards in place with those two algorithms, but then NIST has said that they expect to be announcing uh, the winners of what they're calling the round three competition literally any day now. So we were we were actually expecting to see that last month, but it, they're still working on some of the final details. So within, I would expect, you know, hopefully this month that we'll see the first set of algorithms to be standardized, and then there'll be another round, um, you know, at some point after that where they they add some additional algorithms, and then the expectation is once this, they make these announcements, we'll have algorithms that are very close to being standardized. It'll take a couple of years to work through all the you know, kind of the full documentation. Um, of the standards. So there may be some tweaks to the algorithm over the next couple of years, but we will be at a point where we can start implementing systems that are um, using algorithms that will be standardized. And if they, the standards are tweaked in the next couple of years, it will be an easy firmware update to allow those algorithms to be tweaked to match any changes in the standard. So we're very, very close is the answer. So we're with, it sounds like we're within a couple of years, you know, of, I mean, it sounds like things are, something is available today, but we're really within a couple of years, you know, of, you know, having, you know, some more robust standards, some of the more, you know, um, forward looking standards. Um, and you actually bring up a good point, Alan, you know, um, um, when you mentioned, you know, firmware updates. So, with, I mean, as we mentioned at the top of the uh, conversation here, um, you know, some of the systems that we're working with are designed to be deployed for decades, um, some, especially in some of the industrial areas. Um, how would an engineer um, design a system such that it could be, you know, implemented today using current RSA and ECC techniques, um, and then be upgradable to some of the uh, the post quantum techniques that you're describing. Well, there's there's a couple of different approaches. I mean, we do have algorithms available today that are standardized for code signing, so those can be used for secure boot and platform security. Um, and then the other question companies need to ask is how critical is it that they be compliant with standards? Um, and the answer varies. If you're looking at platform security, right? Basically, how does an, an IoT device protect the platform itself so that it can't be hacked, right? So that in, that's things like secure boot and the secure firmware update capabilities. You know, you can, you can start building a secure boot and secure firmware update solution using post-quantum crypto algorithms today and deploy that system and then you know, once that's in the field, like if, like you say, if you're building a satellite communication system that's going to be in the field for the next three decades, well, a year from now or two years from now, you could update your communication protocols in a way that you know is secure because you've got the post-quantum um, security around the firmware updates and the platform security. And with that update, you could you could update your communication protocols to support post-quantum algorithms. So one way to get started is, is addressing platform security. And in that case, even if what you build is 
um, isn't completely compliance, completely compliant with standards, that's less of an issue because it's a closed system. It will still be post-quantum secure, but then you can upgrade your communication protocols in a couple of years in a way that's com compliant with standards because there it's more important for interoperability that you be compliant with standards. As long as a if a if a system is designed to be closed, not really interacting with something, they could really go out and put in the post quantum security today, um, and still maintain other levels of security for some of the for the current secure communication channels until those new standards are ready. Exactly, and and people are doing that, right? Companies are starting to adopt this technology, right? They know the standards are very very close. Um, and we, we've kind of alluded to this a couple of times, but, you know, one point that's also quite important to make is the devices we're building today in many cases will still be in the field 20 years from now. So whether quantum computers are able to break these encryption algorithms in six years or 10 years, you know, which is kind of the range people are saying is irrelevant. If you're building a product that's going to be in the field for 20 years, you need to start looking at this now and be concerned about it today. Exactly. Building that flexibility for uh, for upgrades and for fu to future-proof those designs. Exactly. Does quantum computing affect things like, you know, I mean, the, you know, using trusted execution environments? I, I assume all those techniques will still apply to future designs as well as, as current designs. Yeah, no, those are still absolutely important, right? I mean, you have to protect your private keys. I mean, that's one of the things that trusted execution environments help support in TPMs and other similar technologies. Um, they allow, uh, you know, we talked about design flaws being used by hackers to, um, to compromise systems. Well, with a trusted execution environment, you can keep your security capabilities, your security protocols, and your encryption algorithms and, and other highly sensitive, highly secured components within that trusted world, right, that's isolated. So a good example would be, you know, a set-top box or an iPhone where you have all sorts of downloadable apps, right, that can be um, added to the device. If somebody compromises that app, they're not able to break the overall system because the system security components are running within that trusted execution environment or some other isolation environment. And so, those things still provide a lot of value and, and will still exist. Um, global Platform, for example, is working on kind of next generation standards. And that's something that we're, we're working with them around is how do they extend their APIs for a trusted execution environment to enable support for post-quantum encryption algorithms alongside of what they, they currently support. So, so the real, so, I mean, as we proceed to a post-quantum world, there will be changes and in, in modifications to existing trusted uh, execution environments, but the concept will still remain uh, viable for, um, you know, for, for overall security. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. You know, from uh, PQ Shield, I assume PQ stands for post-quantum. I mean, how are you guys involved in creating some of these new algorithms or implementing some of these new algorithms? Yeah, so absolutely. PQ Shield does stand for, for post-quantum. And so our company... You know, we got involved, you know, um, you know, very early on in the NIST process in helping to evaluate algorithms. We actually have um, a large number of cryptographers on our staff. Several of the post-quantum algorithms being evaluated by NIST um, were submitted by our team or our team as co-authors on those. So we, um, we've been very, very heavily involved in that activities. Um, we've actually implemented all of the NIST round two and round three algorithms. So everything that made it to round two, we've implemented 
And part of, part of that was to help in the evaluation process with NIST to allow you know an implementation that would show the strength and weak, strengths and weaknesses of a given algorithm and so on. As we've moved into round three and we're very close to having commercial solutions and and having standards, you know we've built both software SDKs implementing all of the NIST round three algorithms, as well as hardware IP that can be used to implement. Um, most of the round three algorithms in hardware. There's a few of the algorithms that are not well suited for hardware implementations. Um, but for those that that are well suited for hardware implementations, we have hardware IP designs that can be implemented in a custom ASIC or an FPGA. And so we're we're using those two, those products, the hardware products and the software products, to enable companies that are building, you know, the kind of the next generation of security platforms to start incorporating post-quantum crypto into their platform security, their, you know, their root of trust systems, their secure communication algorithms, um, and their authentication systems, you know, all of those components. Yeah, when you mentioned hardware implementations, uh, I mean, you answered my question, but I, I was thinking, okay, is this down at the ASIC or the FPGA level? And yes, it is. So so a designer can simply, you know, I mean, take the IP. Um, I, I don't know if it, they're soft cores or hard cores, but they just drop them into an, a design and, you know, they're, they are going to be uh, compliant with some of these, well, will be compliant with some of these new standards. Yeah, and, and you're right. It's it's all of those things. So there are soft cores that can be run in an FPGA. It can be implemented as a hard core in an ASIC. And you know, one of the other things that we haven't touched on is the concept of side channel attack resistance. So when you look at um, you know encryption systems, there are ways that attackers are able to try to um, monitor things like RF output. Uh, how long it takes operations to perform, power consumption, and, and things like that, that can leak information and allow hackers to discover key material. And so those are all called side channel attacks. So when you start building crypto systems, especially in hardware, you need to start looking at side channel attack resistance. And that's another um, area that we've been very focused on. So with our our solutions, we have built-in side channel attack resistance, which is really where you start to get from the you know, kind of the, the NIST academic research on you know what algorithms would be safe in a post quantum world to how do you actually implement this in a practical way in a system that's going to be used you know in a highly highly secured environment where you're going to have you know potentially nation state attackers who are going to you know employ any and all mechanism to try to break the device and have um very sophisticated resources right a lot of time and effort that they can can throw at it with very skilled resources so um you know having that those highly hardened highly capable solutions is really critical right so so you're designing for um i mean attacks from like you said i mean you know global you know, state-sponsored attacks, uh, not just you know the, the the guy in his mother's basement uh, hacking away on a PC. Exactly, and if you look at quantum computing, right, the p- first people to have access to those, it's not going to be the the strip kitty in its in the basement. It's going to be you know the nation-state adversaries going after extremely critical assets. I don't know if IBM will actually access it for that, but I think I can actually, uh, you know, um, sign up for time on one of IBM's uh, prototype uh, quantum computers. I, I, I'm not exactly sure how that works, but I think I can actually do that. Yeah, no, IBM and is uh, definitely one of the leaders in this space, and I know they do have a service available now commercially. Um, you know, it's very early days, of course, 
But you know, researchers are making quite rapid progress with these things, and and the capability is going to only continue to increase. I guess uh, before we close, I mean, is is there anything that um, anything else that you'd want to mention, uh, in, you know, about security in general, or or you know, you know, um, post quantum in particular? Well, I think you know the the really the message in security is always you know vigilance and diligence, right? You have to not just think things are going to be okay because you will be attacked. Um, and if you don't know you've been attacked, then then that just means you probably aren't paying attention or don't have the right defenses in place. And post-quantum is really no different, right? I think the, you know, these attacks are coming and you know, it's easy to say, well, it's going to be the end of the decade. That's a long time from now, but it's going to get here more quickly than people think. And it takes a long time to re- replace all the crypto systems. If you think of everywhere that encryption is used today, it's it's extremely pervasive. And, you know, starting to replace those devices, replace the systems, replace all the infrastructure that's using encryption is a, is a process that's going to take a lot of time. And so it's important that people at least start educating themselves, start thinking about a roadmap, um, and depending upon the type of product you're building, you may need to get really aggressive about building security in. If you're building a highly critical, you know, highly safety critical or, um, you know, anything that, that is going, that, that you know is going to be used for a long time and is a high target, you probably need to think about building post-quantum crypto in sooner rather than later. Yeah, and, and the the list of, of systems that uh, that are requiring that is is growing. I mean, um, I've I've heard you know medical infrastructure is now a, a key target for you know for so for some of these guys that uh, um, you know I would have never guessed, but um, you know that is uh, starting to become a, a, a larger and larger target. Yeah, no, all of them are. I mean, in the long run, right? I mean, hackers are very good at finding the weak link and and. You know, if you're the last one to update your system, then you're going to be the first one to that hackers are going to be going after. But um, you know, it's a it's a big problem, but it's a problem that can be solved. You know, the advantage of of post quantum crypto, you know, these encryption algorithms is we don't have to replace the infrastructure. You know, we can still use the same internet, we can still use the same protocols, we can still use the same devices. We just need to replace the the underlying encryption that's used by those devices. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, it sounds like it's a lot of uh, firmware updates and and updating down the road. Yeah, there's a lot of work to be done, but um, it's you know we, we've got a great start on it. NIST has done an amazing job in putting together standards, and um, you know the the infrastructure and the capability will be there. So we've been talking today with Alan Grau, Vice President of Sales and Business Development for PQ Shield. Alan, thanks for walking us through some current attacks and giving us a really good look at what's coming down the road for security. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of The Tech Between Us. Remember, this podcast is just one part of our original and ongoing content series, Empowering Innovation Together. You can find videos, articles, and more on designing for security at mauser.com slash empowering dash innovation. And don't forget to join us for our next episode when we talk driver monitoring systems.